There is zero chance that the initiation of impeachment proceedings by the House of Representatives will lead to the president's removal from office prior to November of 2020. Uh, I'll just be very flat, zero. There is no Republican support whatsoever for such a move, either at the rank and file level or at the level of elected public officials. And so it would be a replay of the feckless attempt to remove Bill Clinton from office in 1998 with the added feature that Democrats will have proved that they learned nothing from what happened to the Republicans as a result of that. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 4th, 2019. Bill Galston, one of my dearest colleagues at the Brookings Institution, general wise man and former Bill Clinton domestic policy advisor, wrote his column this week in the Wall Street Journal arguing against impeachment in a fashion that sharply diverges from arguments made by others on lawfare. He argues that polling data shows that an impeachment inquiry would be an irresponsible direction for anyone hoping to remove Trump from office. I invited him on the podcast to discuss his column as well as his recent book, Anti-Pluralism, The Populist Threat to Liberal Democracy. We talked about populism as an international phenomenon and as a domestic one. We talked about the role of economics and identity in driving populism internationally. And we talked about whether populisms of the left and right were symmetric issues or whether they presented different ones. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 414, Bill Galston on Populism and Impeachment. Let's start with your column this week, which cuts against a lot of commentary that has been going on on Lawfare uh, some of the stuff that I've been writing, as well as some of the stuff that, uh, particularly a very strong piece uh, by Susan and Susan Hennessy and Quinta Jurassic, arguing that impeachment at this point, or at least the consideration of it in a serious way, is a constitutional duty on the part of Congress. You argue in your latest Wall Street Journal column that it would be irresponsible. So walk us through. Uh, the reason for that? Well, first of all, the word irresponsible occurs in the headline, which I did not write. Having said that, the core of my argument is that the ultimate normalization of President Trump's conduct would be his reelection in 2020, and that people, people who believe uh, as I do, that his presidency poses a problem for our constitutional order, should therefore subordinate all other considerations to the objective of maximizing the chance that he will not be reelected in 2020. So that's, that's the major premise of the argument. The minor premise, which leads to the conclusion of my syllogism, is that because it is so very clear that public support for impeachment is lacking, that the odds are the odds are pretty high that if Democrats go down that road, they will antagonize at least some of the people that they're going to need to prevail in 2020. I made that argument at the beginning of this week 
based on data then available. At 6 o'clock this morning, another survey came out from the Quinnipiac organization, which really nails it as far as I'm concerned. And what it found is that uh, although the American people are absolutely clear in their conviction that the president has done a number of bad and arguably illegal things, only 29% want Congress to initiate impeachment proceedings. 66% say don't do it. When they're asked why, they give a very cogent reason. They do not believe that Congress can walk and chew gum at the same time. They believe if we begin to walk down the road towards impeachment, it will be all impeachment all the time, and Congress will neglect other matters that touch the daily lives of the American people much more directly. All right. So let's talk about that poll data. In your judgment, and you've, you cite a lot of it in the column, how consistent is the poll data on this point? The Quinnipiac poll that I was unaware of until this very moment uh, is pretty dramatic as in your account. How outlying is it? How big is the variation between these various polls? I spend – You read a lot of polls. I spend more time examining survey research uh, than is good for my mental health. And not a single survey has shown a plurality, let alone majority, of the American people in favor of initiating impeachment proceedings. Now, this is important. But what's the N in that? How many, how many surveys have asked the question at in least a half, way? At least half a dozen high-quality surveys in the past month. And Quinnipiac is not an outlier in the basic thrust of its findings. The 66% opposition is a little bit higher than some of the other polls have, have shown, but it's always a majority, always. Okay, so if I were arguing for the it's a duty position, which I do kind of feel in my gut, and I'm, I'm not uh, ashamed to say that the anonymous friend of yours whose view is cited in the beginning of the column as having said that he, which is to say I, began reading the Mueller report sympathetic to Nancy Pelosi's uh, position and finished it believing that there was a constitutional duty on the part of Congress mm -hmm, to mm -hmm, do something about mm -hmm. it. Uh, that is, I believe, a reference to me. Indeed and, it is. <laughs> um, so I, I'm outing myself here. Um, you know, I am attracted to your general I, I I buy your general sense that it is a totally self-defeating proposition to say we are it is so important to do something about the behavior of Donald Trump that we should behave in a way that it maximizes the likelihood of his reelection. I agree with that 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 is no maximizes the likelihood of his defeat. No, 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 no. I'm yeah. saying that would be a self-defeating yeah. right right right. So you know that said, I am also attracted to the idea that, hey, leadership matters. And while it is generally not a good idea politically to go down a road that is poll tested as unpopular, um, there is something to be said for the idea that if, if you believe that there is a, uh, you know, a major constitutional, not, not quite obligation, but that the, the constitutional obligations of the Congress militate toward action rather than inaction, that 
do the right thing and the polls will follow rather than be led by them. Uh, you are looking very contemptuous I'm right not, now. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, you're mis you you're misreading my face and body language. I'm not looking contemptuous. I understand the appeal of the here I stand, I can do no other argument. My favorite philosopher when I was a graduate student and, and a young academic was Immanuel Kant, who is you know, the, the source for all the modern accounts of duty and what duty, duty requires. I would say, first of all, that for Congress, impeachment is a constitutional option. Uh, I would hesitate to say that it's a constitutional duty because impeachment is not a legal proceeding. It's a political proceeding in the last analysis. And uh, late President Jerry Ford you know, famously said that an impeachable offense is what a majority of the House of Representatives believes it to be at any given time. That's a paraphrase, but I think it's pretty close. But there is the ultimate judge, which is not the House of Representatives, not even the Senate, but the American people. Uh, so that's point number one. Well, can I push you on point number one before yeah. we turn to point number two? Because it seems to me that you have just described the modality by which congressional authorities atrophy. And you know, if you think about how the war powers migrated from the legislative branch to the executive branch, it is largely through a process of non-assertion of them by Congress over time, as much as it is a function of the usurpation of them and the aggressive assertion of them by the executive over time. And if you look at the areas where Congress, Congress is sort of under, like, their constitutional powers have shrunk over time. It is largely, not completely, but there's a big component of it is that when faced with choices, is this an opportune political moment to exercise this power? The path forks yes or no, and you say no for some very good reasons like this one, and you iterate that enough times that the power lapses into kind of desuetude. And so my question is, is one of the risks that you're basically defining a set of presidential exertions of, of authority and behavior as acceptable, even if you're not saying it, you're risking that that becomes the presidential takeaway over, over time. No, I'm saying something quite different. First, let's look at the situation. There is zero chance that the initiation of impeachment proceedings by the House of Representatives will lead to the president's removal from office prior to November of 2020. Uh, I'll just be very flat, zero. There is no Republican support whatsoever for such a move, either at the rank and file level or at the level of elected public officials. And so it would be, you know, it would be a replay of the feckless attempt to remove Bill Clinton from office in 1998 with the added feature that Democrats will have proved that they learned nothing from what happened to the Republicans as a result of that. Do I think that it would be a dereliction of duty for the House of Representatives to refrain from engaging in a kamikaze mission? 
Well, you know, some kamikaze pilots thought that they had a duty to kill themselves and crash into U.S. Air Force destroyers, uh, and they killed themselves all right. Uh, they didn't change the course of the war. So, so what I'm urging here is less talk of duty and more talk of consequences. What will the actual practical consequences of particular courses of action be? And my position is very simple. I am unwilling to recommend any action that, in my judgment, will materially increase the chances that Donald J. Trump will be president of the United States until January of 2025. That, for me, is absolutely the worst outcome. And based on my reading of the political situation, which I do not expect to change as the result of hearings, because the American people for and against, have already taken the measure of Mr. Trump. They, they already know what he's done. And if you look at survey after survey, they've, they've said that he tried to in, obstruct the inquiry. He tried to do this. He tried to do that. They are not buying the administration's line. They're not buying the attorney general's line. Uh, they, they believe their interpretation of what they've heard about the Mueller report, despite efforts to obfuscate what it actually said. Thank God you and others have been writing analytically about what it absolutely said. The American people are on the side of Mueller found bad stuff and didn't exonerate the president. Nevertheless, a solid majority, and if you believe Quinnipiac, two-thirds say we don't want to go down the impeachment road. You know, and I suppose it's logically possible that Congress could go down that road be seen by a chunk of the American people as neglecting other matters in order to go down that road, and still the Democrats would pay no price in 2020. That's possible, but as a betting man, that's not a bet I would be willing to make. I want to propose an alternative that uh, harmonizes uh, your concerns and mine, which is an idea that was proposed during the Clinton impeachment, which I, and actually the idea, an idea that I favored at the time, which was, uh, would be a resolution, you could call it a resolution of censure, mm -hmm. that would simply say, in this case, the House of Representatives believes the president to have committed the following impeachable offenses uh, and contents itself with this resolution of censure. And it could be done quickly it could be done without drawn out hearings. It would, from my point of view, mark the important territory that says the House actually does consider this information to be in principle impeachable and declines as a matter of discretion uh, and thereby, from your point of view, allows the House not to spit into the winds of political currents. Your thoughts? I think that's a very sensible proposal. I'd be happy to join forces with you to support it. It would be interesting to try to write it, um, write, write what such a document would look like. Um, let's, uh, let's hold that thought and come back to it. All right. Let's talk about your book because all of this takes place against uh, the backdrop mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. some broader political currents that you have uh, written a, a short and incredibly readable book about. And 
I'm interested in, so the book came out, what, about eight months, ten, nine months ago? Actually, it was a year. A year. So we're, uh, it has aged very well. It hasn't um, sold very well, however. <laughs> well, well, Lawfare podcast listeners, uh, let's get on that. Um, uh, Believe me, you can get a bargain on Amazon. <laughs> so, so, so tell us about the thesis and, and specifically, uh, I mean, it's a, stu- a stupid question, but what led you to write this book at this time? Well, I started noticing about six years ago that people were – withdrawing their support from a lot of traditional leaders and traditional parties, not just in the United States, but throughout the Democratic West. And so I actually sat down and wrote a piece called The New Challenge to Market to, to Market Economies, in which I argued that the failure of traditional Western leaders to avert the financial crisis and the Great Depression, and even more to respond to it with measures that would restart the engines of economic growth, rapidly reduce unemployment, et cetera, had diminished the credibility of traditional leaders, uh, that uh, many, many people were looking for alternatives outside the range of alternatives offered by the dominant party systems of most of the Western democracies. People were in the streets in 2013. And so I, I argued at the time that, that there was a populist upsurge brewing that at the time I thought was principally economic in its origins. Run the reel forward a couple of years uh, to the spring of 2015 when Chancellor Angela Merkel made her noble but ill-fated decision to admit more than a million refugees from Syria, the Middle East, and North Africa without really consulting either her own people or the other leaders of the European Union, et cetera. And what was noticeable almost immediately was that the political backlash was intense uh, and that in country after country, immigration became the focal point of a revolt against center-left and center-right parties uh, that had joined forces in favor of relatively generous and open immigration and refugee policies. And from 2015 to 2019, there has been a series, an unbroken series of victories, gains by populist parties that previously had been totally excluded from parliaments and governments throughout the West. Uh, and I could, if, if we had a lot of time, I could go country by country and show parties that barely existed in 2010, which became dominant parties, almost in some cases literally the dominant party. Uh, let's, just, let's just take one example, Italy. There was, for a long time, a party called the Northern League, whose program, uh, hearkening back to the 19th century, was splitting off North Tyrol or South Tyrol from Italy and reuniting it with North Tyrol, and what I, most of which I believe is in Switzerland, and creating an independent Tyrol. 
they were an asterisk party until a period of mass migration from northern Africa to Italy began to surge around the year 20, uh, around 2013 and 2014. The Northern League dropped the North, word northern from its title, became ferociously anti-immigrant, and moved in the space of one electoral cycle from 4% support among the people to 18%. They proceeded to enter the government as part of the coalition with the Five Star Movement, and they have totally aced out the Five Star Movement and now enjoy the support of about 35% of the Italian people and no other party is close on the basis of a single issue, immigration. There is a lot of evidence uh, from, from post-election survey research that immigration and the questions of sovereignty and control that immigration implicated were principal drivers of the Brexit vote. I myself have participated in work, uh, survey research work and other kinds of analysis, suggesting that immigration was the single most powerful issue uh, that then candidate Donald Trump deployed in order to win his electoral college victory. And clearly, he believes that that remains true today, uh, which helps to explain why he's doubling down virtually every week on uh, increasingly restrictive border policies. So all of, this is, all of this is to say that there is a populist upsurge that has been fueled in part by the failure of the modern information economy, which replaced the old mass industrial manufacturing economy, to produce decent and secure lives for working classes and middle classes throughout the West. But in part also, and I think in increasing measure, the kinds of identity issues that mass immigration and rapid demographic change have triggered throughout the West. And so in my book, I trace the way those sorts of factors interact in order to fuel gains by populist leaders, parties, and movements. And I then ask the question, what can, what can people who believe that there was a lot of the old order that needs to be preserved and protected, what can we do in order to counter this populist upsurge? And I make a number of recommendations both on the economic front and on the immigration slash identity front uh, to, to try to take on board uh, what is legitimate about the populist complaints without succumbing to, to xenophobia or self-defeating economic and demographic closure. I could go on, but that's basically what the book is about. Well, so I, I, wanna, I want you to go on, and I want you to go on about this. What is legitimate about the populist complaints on both the economic and particularly on the cultural side? There's a tendency among people like me, uh, and I'm, I certainly count myself among such people, to simply respond with rage to the populist. I mean, I have no patience for uh, hatred of foreigners, either in the form of sort of like not wanting to trade with them or, uh, you know, not wanting to have alliances with them or not wanting to uh, under 
under reasonably uh, generous circumstances, welcome them into the United States. And uh, and so I have this reaction when I you know, like what's legitimate about this is my sort of instinctive reaction is very little. You are much more generous to it. So walk us through like what's what's the co- core in here that I should have more solicitude for than I do? Well, fair enough. Uh, although it's not usually put this way, a key gravamen of the populist complaint is that elites have done a very poor job of managing the transition from the manufacturing economy to the information economy in the way that takes the interests of working class and and middle class citizens into account. I believe that there is a lot of merit to that charge. And I am not letting myself off the hook. I was a member of an administration that was very, very confident, this was in the 1990s, the Clinton administration, that the new information economy could be made to work for everybody, that it would produce broadly based wage and income gains as the manufacturing economy had in its heyday in the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, That turned out to be wrong. Uh, And in fact, the new information economy uh, is one of the reasons why inequality has risen pretty steadily over the past over the past three decades. Here's another thing that we didn't think through carefully enough and just frankly got wrong. Elites in both political parties united to ease the way for China's entrance into the World Trade Organization, the WTO, in 2001. We dramatically underestimated the impact of China's full emergence into the global economy on working class Americans. Here's a fact that's not well known. Between 2001 and 2007, that is in that six-year period before the onset of the Great Recession, we lost 3.3 million manufacturing jobs, close to 20% of our manufacturing employment base. And starting in 2012, some of the country's best labor economists did an analysis of the impact of the Chinese import surge on US manufacturing output and jobs in a very fine-grained way, not just region by region, but also metropolitan area by metropolitan area. And they ended up vindicating what simple observation would have suggested, namely that a major reason why jobs were lost and wages were depressed during that period had to do with this surge of imports, which was essentially unregulated and whose impact was unanticipated. So if someone comes along and says, these trade agreements may be great for the Chinese and great for elites, but they're bad for you, he's not just making it up. There is something there that people who are not populists and think populism is retrograde and damaging in the long run need to take into account. Do we need to rethink the way we conceptualize protections for incumbent workers and incumbent industries built into trade agreements? Are we simply, are we comfortable with the idea that we will just let the market mechanism flow and the devil take the hindmost. 
I was a lot more blasé about that a quarter of a century ago than I am now. So that's point number one. Point number two, although I'm not sympathetic to the idea of immigration restriction, I am sympathetic to the idea that there is something profoundly unbalanced and out of whack about the U.S. immigration system as it now stands. And let me just give you one example. We award 68% of the annual quota of green cards based on family relationships. No other country in the world does anything of the sort. In the English-speaking world, wherever you look, the family share is about 20%. About two-thirds of green cards are given out, given out on the basis of an economic determination that a particular immigrant would help to fill important, an important need in the economy. Does that mean that you only accept high-skilled immigrants? No, it doesn't. But you know, especially in the United States, where we have an agricultural sector that depends uh, on lower-skilled immigrants, uh, a construction sector that depends on middle-skilled immigrants and, and people who can learn how to be carpenters and electricians if they're willing. But we should pay attention to the fact that, for example, our neighbor to the north has a very popular immigration system. Uh, that focuses a lot more on economic determinations of suitability for immigration and a lot less on family reunification than ours does. That's just for starts. And to put my cards on the table, I've been part of immigration reform bipartisan groups going back more than a decade that unanimously reached the conclusion that a movement away from family reunification towards a more economically-based system is the only rational decision to be made. By the way, the bipartisan 2013 immigration bill, which got the support of all 54 Democrats in the U.S. Senate and 14 Republicans, made exactly that shift from family reunification to a more economically based policy. And so am I outraged when the administration proposes such a shift? No, I'm not. The administration has proposed the elimination of the diversity lottery. Guess what? The 2013 immigration bill eliminated the diversity lottery. So so a lot of people are responding in horror to proposals that enjoyed the unanimous support of Democrats in the U.S. Senate six years ago. And I understand the antipathy to these proposals. Consider who's proposing them. Well, and the the packages that they're part of, right? look, Look, but your question was... What are the element? What are the legitimate elements of the populist complaint that we need to pay attention to? And I've just given you two examples, no, fair, and I could go on. Fair enough. No, those are those are excellent examples. Uh, let me ask you though. I, I do feel like there's a, and I feel like this about all a whole lot of aspects of contemporary debate. Yeah. That you're sitting you're sitting here teasing out of a broadly demagogic articulation of populist grievance, these areas of legitimate concern Mm -hmm. that a reasonable political response would address. Correct. And I do wonder if the response of the populists would just be build the wall, secure the border. And I'm... 
it feels like there's a, a, a sort of gross absence of parallelism between what you're proposing and what it's responding to. And so I'm, I'm just curious for your sense of how a sort of anti-populist movements should think about the sort of inherent imbalance of rhetoric and the sort of sort of asymmetry of the movements that they're constructing versus the movements that they're they're responding to for the most part the movements they're constructing are not majority movements and never will be so the task of anti-populists is to rally an anti, a sustainable anti-populist majority and the question is how to do that and there are two theories Theory one is to pour gasoline on a raging fire. Theory two is to pour oil on troubled waters. I adhere to theory two. And so I'm less interested in persuading the 35% of the country that is diehard for Trump and much more interested in organizing and rallying the 55% who are desperately looking for an alternative to Trump. And my, my thesis, which... I could go into a lot of political science to try to defend, is that a strategy that responds not by saying, so's your mother, but demonstrates reason in the face of unreason is going to be very attractive to a lot of people in the middle who are exhausted by the tumult, who want to return to something like normality, who are, at least in the early going, responding very favorably, astonishingly favorably, to the candidacy of Vice President Joe Biden now for the Democratic nomination. I think there's, there's a yearning in the majority of the body, body politic for less conflict, less tumult, a more unifying approach to politics. Uh, those are not the voices you hear. They're not the loudest voices, but they may be the decisive voices. And so I, I think those of us who want to act on the basis of hope for the future of American politics and the country are going to have to restrain understandable impulses you know, to respond to unreason with flat rejection and negation. If I thought that that were the right way to go, I would be for it, but I don't. All right. So let's let's talk about the populism of the left then, because one other uh, response to the kind of surge of right-wing populist mm -hmm. parties and options and rhetoric is left-wing populism, which has... Uh, a very different kind of political valence, and it promises a very different set of things politically, but it is it also shares certain qualities. And so I, I'm interested to what extent is to what extent is that a a a symmetric problem? Um, and to what extent is it, a different problem that left-wing populism is essentially the, you know, the traditional left in a, in a lot of ways, and that's the part that's the sort of management of the left flank of the Democratic Party that the Democratic Party's been dealing with, you know, since Roosevelt and before. Um, 
whereas there is actually an, the, 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 the phenomenon you described earlier of the sort of surge of right-wing populace is a fundamentally different problem than the Republican Party has been dealing with before. Or to what extent is it more parallel than that? Uh, I actually don't think it's strictly symmetrical. In my view, the financial crisis, the Great Recession, the period of very slow growth that followed it, the rise of inequality, stagnation of wages and incomes for an extended period, all of those phenomena have triggered, I think, legitimate questions as to whether the policies of the 1990s, for example, are adequate to the problems of the 2020s. And at the core, I think, uh, of, of this is the fact that, to repeat myself, the information economy is not symmetrical in its economic and social effects to or with the old manufacturing economy. The old manufacturing economy tended to bring us together across regional lines. It fostered a convergence between poorer and wealthier regions of the country uh, for the three decades after the Second World War. And it tended to distribute the benefits of economic growth pretty broadly across economic classes. So we tended to rise together. And when JFK said that a rising tide lifts all boats, that was a much more situated historically situated judgment than he understood. But at that point, we had an economy that did function to produce that kind of result. We don't anymore. All of the evidence suggests that the information economy promotes not only inequality across classes, but increasing divergence across regions as well. And so we now have the phenomenon of substantial portions of the country that have simply been left behind Production is declining, employment is declining, population is declining, and those portions of the country are extremely unhappy. And so you put all of this together and a left-wing populism that focuses on inequality, the lack of a sense of agency, the loss of a sense of agency and autonomy, uh, by workers and many members of the middle class, the movement towards the gig economy, which disempowers workers more than it empowers them and leaves them in most cases without benefits or secure retirements. I could go on. These are huge structural problems of the new economy. And to the extent that the left is trying, is responding to them, they are responding to a real problem. I put left-wing populism in a different category from right-wing populism at this point, but they do have something in common, and that is that if you look hard at what they're saying, what they're complaining about, what they're proposing, there are important kernels of truth and urgency in both that we need to think through. One more general topic about sort of populist themes that may have legitimate internal cores. One of the big themes of right-wing populism is a sort of opposition to political correctness and a sort of contempt for political correctness. And this shows up in 
a lot of different areas, right, from a solicitude for campus males who have been accused of sexual assault and and a sort of suspicion of of the absence of process to evaluate those claims to a kind of, I mean, sometimes in the most sort of overt forms, the president uh, calling, you know, a white nationalist protest in Nazi protest in Charlottesville, uh, a matter of fine people on both sides, right? But one of the, I do think one of the sort of big themes of Trump that excites a lot of people is this kind of middle finger at the sort of PC expectations, or what I would think of as at the more extreme, the PC expectations, and on the other side, just expectations of decency. Mm -hmm. I'm interested what is the aspect of this that, if any, that strikes you as sort of a legitimate thing that a revitalized center needs to think about? Well, as someone who spent 30 years of his life uh, as an academic, a professor on college campuses, I know very well that it's a lot easier to talk about this problem than it is to solve it practically. In theory, here I am sitting in this studio with you, I can say, for example, that there is, in my judgment, a world of difference between racial epithets on the one hand, and it's not a matter of political correctness to prohibit their use. It's a matter of equal citizenship and common decency, and no one should, I mean, I suppose as a legal matter, uh, it's necessary to defend the right of people to speak freely, including using racial epithets in a number of situations. But that doesn't mean that it's a form of political correctness to try to socially discourage their use. I would distinguish sharply between racial epithets on the one hand and, for example, raising questions about affirmative action on the other. That, that's apples and oranges as far as I'm concerned. And if someone on campus says the use of racial epithets creates a, an atmosphere where I feel unsafe and insecure, I have a lot of sympathy for that. If someone says a public discussion of the pros and cons of affirmative action makes me feel unsafe and insecure, I have no sympathy for that whatsoever. And if I have no sympathy for shouting down speakers and refusing to let them speak. I can think of speakers that administration, college administrations would be well advised not to allow on their campus. But the idea that someone like Charles Murray would be shouted down and physically threatened visiting one of the best liberal arts colleges in the country is is one that makes me feel very uneasy. So I think what began as an effort to police speech that was intended to suppress and silence and subordinate certain groups in our society has turned into something much broader and in many cases less defensible. Getting back to your question, I think that Trump's critique of political correctness 
is powerful for the same reason that comedy is powerful. And that is it provides a mechanism for relieving sentiments that ordinary norms of speech suppress, right? It, it has the effect of legitimating complaints that many people have, the sense of constraint that they feel in speaking, uh, but can't acknowledge publicly because they usually find themselves in circumstances in which they'll be criticized or even ostracized if they make those points. So, you know, I know I'm sounding like the wishy-washy centrist that I, in fact, am, but here— It's okay. Somebody has to. You know, here, But here again, I think you have to try to make distinctions in theory and then put them in, put them in place in practice between— the germ of legitimacy in, in the complaint on the one hand uh, and the proposed remedy on the other. So is the proposed remedy for political correctness that someone who's made a career of insulting women uh, should be on the board of governors of the Federal Reserve? Hell no, right? I mean, he should feel free to continue those ju juvenile rants, but you know, should he be rewarded with one of the most important posts in the U.S. government? No. That's, as far as I'm concerned, that stuff was beyond the pale. We got an argument about that, but uh, denouncing women who make bigger salaries than their husbands? <laughs> Bill Galston, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, which is never more visible than when we have Brookings people on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks this week to Bill for coming on the show. If you haven't yet done so, please take a second to share the Lawfare Podcast on social media and give us a five-star rating and review wherever you found us. You know, there's a tendency now on podcasts to advertise on other podcasts, we don't do that. You're not going to see like a ad for the Lawfare podcast on Slate or uh, on one of their podcasts. We only have you to spread the word. So do it, people. You can also purchase Lawfare swag and you know you want to at our online store, www.thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our audio engineers this week were... Matthew Kahn and Michaela Fogel. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.